1: There's nothing particularly new about the idea of music as a palliative or a distraction from the pain and discomfort associated with with medical illness. But over the last 25 years or so, we've seen a rising tide of interest in something that lies well beyond that. A new frontier where music is actually therapeutic and where its curative powers can be discovered. It's what we'll be talking about tonight, at least in part, and through the lens of neuroscience. And we'll tell it also through the stories of these two musicians who faced catastrophic medical conditions in very different ways. And we know so much more than we did in the past about the so-called mind-body connection. And we know enough to know that a lot of it still remains mysterious. And music is like that too, almost kind of casting a shadow over both mind and body, or almost becoming a third point in a triangle with the other two points, being mind and body. No one here tonight is going to tell you that music alone can solve medical problems. But I'd be willing to bet that after tonight, you'd be far less likely to address any medical crisis in your life, which I hope you don't have, uh, without at least exploring and and adding the musical dimension to what you're doing for yourself. And maybe adding the musical dimension even more right now while while you're in the pink of health. I think you'll hear ways in which it can forestall various kinds of medical conditions. But Rather than me talking anymore, and before we begin the conversation here, and before I even introduce everybody to you, I thought we'd begin with some music. So our musicians up here are going to play something for you. Maybe, as opposed to how you ordinarily listen to music, see if you can notice a little bit more about what's going on inside you as you listen to this music. And we've got people up here who can then tell you what was going on inside you. Um, are you ready?
2: Hi. God bless
1: You see how easy this is going to be? Jim and Kate are going to sit down, catch their breath, grab some water, uh, and I'm going to introduce them, them to you in just a second. But I want you to meet the rest of the panel first, uh, starting two seats to the right. from me, Emily Bellavacqua is a board-certified music therapist and the co-director of Connecticut Music Therapy Services, which is a private practice providing quality home and uh, school and community-based music therapy services. We'll tell you all about what that means. This is a relatively new idea for some of us. Then to my immediate right, Sarah Raskin is a professor in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience Program at Trinity College, has published two books and numerous articles on treatment techniques for people with brain injury. Sarah, I'm going to start with you, because uh, we just heard music. And for the people hearing the music, one set of things was going on. For the people performing the music, another set of things was going on. But let's talk about the people in the audience. Um, if we were to put an uh, MRI on their brain, if we were be able to, able to measure neurochemicals, what's going on in their heads right now? I know this, there's a semester's worth of information about this, but, uh, but give us the short answer.
3: Let's do it. Who wants yeah. an MRI? <laughs> let's just do it. So, um, I mean, I think one of the things that's exciting about music and that we find so reinforcing about music and so therapeutic, which Emily will talk about, is that really almost all of your brain is involved when you're listening to music. From the most basic levels, obviously, you're hearing music, which is your temporal lobes right above your ears. You're remembering some of the music if you've heard it before. Even if you haven't heard it before, your memory centers are saying, wow, that little melodic line sounds familiar. Or that bit of a lyric sounds familiar, so there's a lot of memory processes going on. There's also all kinds of things about rhythm that happen in your cerebellum, which is in the very back of your brain. It's very arousing, it's very activating, and so all of those arousal systems are going on. But I think what all of us experienced, probably more than anything, is the emotional component of the music. And those kind of deep, limbic, amygdala, emotional centers are what we all just experience so fully, and you know, people who study this um, talk about music that gives you the chill down your spine. Versus, so they write scientific papers about chill music versus not chill music. Yeah. So, and I think this well, is, truly well, was chill music. I that chill we, music. I think, <laughs> for everybody here, different people have different chill music. Of course, it's individual. But I think that was probably chill music for everybody here. And for me, the most exciting part of it is, and this is something I didn't really understand. I'm not a musician, and I didn't understand until I started reading about music in the brain, is that so much of music is about building for us expectations, and then the composer and performer can either fulfill those expectations or not. And so that makes the music interesting. And so the part of the brain that's involved in that is your frontal lobes, which are my personal favorite part of the brain. <laughs> <laughs> And the part that are involved with sort of your highest level of thinking, planning, problem solving, kind of what we think of as who we are as a person. And so those are quite activated all the time in music.
1: Actually, Emily, this does segue very nicely into what you do, whether you're working with someone with chronic dementia or a traumatic brain injury, someone uh, with autism. Some of the things that she's talking about are things that you're actually trying to engage And maybe we should just begin by explaining what music therapy is. That would be a good thing to do first.
0: Essentially, what we're doing is we're using client-centered music experiences to help promote positive change. We work with children and adults with a wide range of special needs. Um, So this could be like a child with autism. This could be an individual um, who has undergone trauma it could be an older adult with Alzheimer's and dementia. It could be in a medical setting. We really work across the board. But we're working with clients and their families to figure out what goals are we trying to reach and what kinds of music experiences are we going to use to meet those goals. So it's a
1: little bit different in some ways. I mean, one thing that you told me, it wasn't—it it isn't prescriptive. It isn't take two train and call me in the morning. It's, <laughs> right. You, you, you really have to begin with the person.
0: Exactly. So... I'm a humanistic therapist and music therapists come with all different orientations. It's completely client-centered. It's a triangle. It's so, you know, if you look at a triangle, music is on the top and then the client and the therapist are the two bottom points. So through this relationship that we form with the client, through consultation with their family and through other, you know, therapists, teachers, caregivers, we're able to really figure out. What are the goals we're working towards? And then what client-centered, and I keep saying that because it's not prescriptive. It's not that we do the same things with every child, whether they have the same diagnosis or with every adult with Alzheimer's, you know, even if they're the same age and have, you know, similar, you know, things going on. It's really about kind of in that moment forming that relationship and figuring out what kinds of music and music experiences to use. So it might be a lot of receptive music so playing music for the client it might be songwriting it might be having a client if they're able you know say it's a, an adolescent um, who's going through depression or has some any number of other things going on journaling and then taking those journals and turning them into music it could be playing instruments with them it could be singing familiar songs it could be using more structured music experiences to help a child with autism with flexibility. I could go on and on and on, but the main point is that it is client-centered and it is relationship-based.
1: You know, before I introduce uh, Jim and Kate and bring them into the conversation, Sarah, one thing that I'm thinking as Emily's talking, too, is that another thing that music does that fits in very much to what you were saying before is it sort of bypasses conscious intent in a lot of ways. Like, when they were playing, I started to get, as we say, verklempt. (laughs) And I don't even really like that song that much. (laughs) And I think, you know, it was in Shrek, and it gets played too much. And it's just, you know, but I'm sitting there, and I'm tearing up. You know, I mean, I've had sort of a complicated day. I've been feeling like I'm under a lot of stress getting this thing ready. There's a lot of moving parts. And suddenly, and we can romanticize this, and I'm sure Jim and Kate can give us romantic answers about this, but something's going on in my brain that I'm not consciously in control of, right? Does neuroscience have a sense of what's going on in my brain specifically? I need, you know, I need to know
3: Well, you know, as Emily said, it's very individualized, so we'd have to really work together for a while for me to answer it. I guess I'm asking, are you saying what changed your mood when you were listening to it, even though it's kind of the song that you don't really like? Yeah, so there's all kinds of evidence. I mean, some of the really exciting evidence about the therapeutic nature of music is that it reduces our stress. So you can measure stress hormones go down. You can measure things like T-cells go up. I mean, there's all kinds of effects on your immune system and your hormones and those things affect your mood. But the other thing that happens, which is a great thing to know about, is that it affects your dopamine pathways and these are those pleasure pathways. Mm -hmm. So the dopamine pathways get you in trouble if you get addicted to something, but if you don't get addicted to something, they're the thing that makes it feel good. So you eat chocolate, you listen to music, you have sex, whatever it is that makes you feel good, you're releasing dopamine and that's the thing that tells your brain or that brain tells you or however you want to think about it Do that again. That was good. I liked that. And music has a really powerful effect on dopamine release, which is, again, I think what makes it a good tool in therapy setting.
1: Let me bring the rest of the panel into this conversation. Jim Chapdelaine, if I were just going to tell you everything that Jim Chapdelaine has done, that would basically be the whole night. Jim's also obviously an amazing musician in his own right. He is a guitar hero. He has won more Emmys than we have uh, seats here in this amphitheater for his producing his behind-the-scenes work. Sitting to his immediate left is Kate Callahan, who is one of the many musicians that Jim has produced for. Kate's an amazing musician in her own right. Her latest CD is Two Doors. She has That's her third CD. Well, I mean, in some ways, all the introduction you really needed to either one of these people is what you heard uh, when they first started performing. But we're going to start telling you some stories here that fit very much into what we want to talk about tonight. And we'll start, Kate, if it's okay, with your story. Part of your story begins in 1996 on a ski slope where another skier ran into you. You suffered a traumatic brain injury and a significant... Tra- I mean, you probably really don't remember a lot of the things that happened even for a year or two after that, maybe?
4: Y- a year or two, sure. Yeah. yeah,
1: And this is something that was uh, that your family and doctors attempted to control with... You know, pretty large cocktails of drugs um, that weren't helping that much. And you had played cello, I think, growing up. You had sung growing up. At a certain point, your um, parents decided to take you off the drug cocktail, and suddenly you wanted to pick up a guitar. Maybe you can also pick up the story from there. What what happened?
4: Coming off the drug cocktail was like processing out heroin. It was the shakes and the pain and the nausea. And for days i think it was 11 days that i went through that but that was the way we as a family unit decided to do things i wouldn't suggest it <sighs> but as colin said re- releasing my system from that massive dose of of the drugs did allow me to start feeling and having original ideas and inspired thought and i remember one day I, you know, as my mom describes it, was out of the blue. We hadn't been having a conversation like this. And I just said, what if I learned to play an instrument that I have no prior history with? Because I had tried to pick up the cello again, and it had been equally traumatic in that I couldn't make sense of it. And I, but I remembered that I had been a fairly accomplished player at that age. So what if I decide to play an instrument that I have no history with so I I can't compare myself? And I thought, what about the acoustic guitar? And I do remember this vividly. My mom bolting up out of her seat and grabbing the Sunday Hartford Current and looking in the classifieds. We found a a little ad for a guitar teacher about less than a mile away, Jamie Sherwood. So I spent a year with Jamie, Um, and I'll describe a little bit of of this. When I began my lessons with Jamie, I couldn't walk down the stairs alone. I had very uh, therapeutic glasses that I wore because my vision was pretty impaired. Uh, My coordination was sketchy, and I couldn't remember from week to week that I was taking lessons. So uh, so it began very uh, slowly, And tenuously in that, I had to be reminded, hey, you know, you you decided you wanted to do this. And so I would practice sometimes five minutes a week at the beginning. And over weeks and months, things started to change. My balance started to improve. I started to walk the steps down to the music studio on my own. I really wanted to see what was on the page the music notes and on the page in front of me, my vision started balancing out and and I remembered <laughs> eventually I remembered consistently that I was taking guitar lessons. The one point I want to bring up is that part of the trauma to my brain left me feel left me without an understanding of what music was and I had been a musical kid, played the cello and sang in choirs, but I didn't understand after the brain injury that you could open your mouth and make sound other than speech. For some reason, I didn't understand that. And over the weeks and months with Jamie Sherwood, working with the guitar, not the voice at all, but working with the guitar, I eventually came to a place where I opened my mouth and started to make those sounds. Those sounds came later.
1: That's great. Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a, the beginning of, of this story. Uh, we're going to have Jim tell his story in a second. This is the longest Jim Chaplin has ever sat without talking and starting to make me <laughs> a little bit nervous. Uh, although, as you're listening to her talk, I mean, we're going to tell your story in a bit, but as you're listening to her talk, I mean, you probably understand what she's talking about, A, in terms of the fear of losing music, and B, in terms of what gets recovered through music better than most of us would.
5: Kate and I have a, a very different sort of journey that we took, but uh, oddly enough, we met in the middle of chapter two of my little story, and, uh, and she had to be very, very patient. I don't know, I forget how many surgeries I had while we were making your record, and I'd come in and I'd play a part on a record with one finger, and she go, oh, that, that's
2: good, that's good.
5: <laughs> uh, and then the next week I'd have like two fingers work. I said, I think I could do that better. I could do it with two <laughs> fingers today. Kate was very patient uh, during that time. Yeah, I mean, I, the fear of loss of music is a huge thing. I, I think it probably might be for anybody who turns off their stereo or loses their iPod or whatever your delivery system is. My story, to circle back on two things, Colin is one of my closest friends, and I only have two. Um, and I, like music therapy, have been around since the 50s. LAUGHTER um, so when I was in college, I was 22, I decided to get a knee operation. And so I got health insurance. And, I just, and during that time, I decided I'll, I'll take guitar lessons from this guy, Pat Metheny. And so I'll take a year off. And, and so I, I did that. And, and we were cooking along. And I and, uh, had this thing growing. And I'd go to a doctor, and he'd give me Blistex. I kept growing, and they'd give me ChapStick. And I, and I thought that was a proprietary thing for me. I ended up going to twelve doctors and finally got diagnosed with this rare form of cancer called angiosarcoma. so I went through twelve doctors and the prognosis is very grim thirty to one hundred people get this a year, and very few people survive more than a year and a half um, and I had it three times over the course of uh, four years, I guess, uh, so my nose is built out of my ear my ears built out of my tongue, and then them bones, them bones. And then years later, it all started to, the treatments from chemotherapy and radiation started to come back and sort of take their toll. And that's sort of chapter two of, of my story. But chapter one was existence, like how do I exist? And the way I existed was I played guitar every single day that I wasn't throwing up, and I would play for eight hours a day because it was the only thing that sort of kept my mind off of this big sort of wolf breathing in my neck and later on it's sort of the effects of it become more existential as opposed to just existing like like how am I going to exist now it looks like I'm going to and now what do I do with it
1: well, what we thought we'd do tonight is talk a little bit and then do a little bit of music, talk a little bit, do a little music but I think uh, the musicians are going to take over for a little bit here and do uh, Kate's songs right now
6: fight in the world. Your knees are touching my knees and I know what you're keeping from me cause I'm keeping the same things from you and I feel if we're gonna go through All oh.
1: This show was recorded last week at Watkinson School. The guests are musicians Jim Choptolane and Kate Callahan, neuroscientist Sarah Raskin, and music therapist Emily Bellavacqua. The topic, when music and medicine collide. Jim, um, we're going to have you perform some of your songs, but before you do that, this is something we talked about. You wanted to do the the, the loop. Tell them about the loop. Tell them about what's going to happen.
5: Okay, so I'm going to try to do this in like a minute or two. So if, if you have a problem with repetitive figures, now would be the time to to hit the loo. I'll try to make it really fast. But sometimes when I'm pottering around my studio, maybe I don't have an idea or maybe I'm in a particular mood and I'm not quite sure what to do with some emotion or something. I'll make a little... I could spend up to an hour making a a four-bar loop. I won't do that today. But a lot of times it's just to relax myself. And if I find a good one, I'll leave it running for days, so when I walk in my studio, it's playing oh yeah, that, and, and then when I step on the button, it's gone forever unless I record it, and occasionally I'll make a little library of these that I use for film so if you want, I'll, I'll just make one yeah. now, it takes seconds, and then it goes away, and I think some monks come in and bless my pedal board
1: All Right <laughs> You know, in terms of sciences and neurosciences' willingness to look at all this stuff, I mean, I feel as though a few years ago I started hearing about Daniel Levitin's book, "This Is Your Brain on Music." But how new is it, and how much of a barrier had to be overcome to get neuroscientists thinking about music as something other than just sort of one of the many flavors? of our experience. I mean it feels like so there's something else going on right now. And I wondered how much resistance had to be overcome and how big it is now.
3: There's still a huge debate among scientists about whether music is special or not special. So is music a byproduct of language and other activities that we do, what Stephen Pinker right calls cheesecake. Mm. Or is it something really evolutionarily basic that we all that we evolved to have because it's so important to us and that Our brains evolved to process music as a very special, separate entity. Rather than we happen to be processing other things and music goes along with those things, so it kind of came along for the ride. And I think there's not clear evidence of that. I will say the other thing that's very new and that maybe allowed people like Levitin to get the kind of, to get people to listen to them. Um, in the important work that he was doing is that the notion of brain plasticity at all is relatively new, maybe 20, 30 years old, so that for a long time, we were talking about this at dinner, people would say you can't change the brain. An adult brain, fully formed, cannot be changed. And so for someone who's had a brain injury or a neurologic disorder, the notion was how can we work with them in order to compensate for or get around the problem that they have? We're not going to fix it. We're not going to change it. But what we learned, partially by listening carefully to people like Kate and Jim, and also you know, just more um, sophisticated methods like the imaging techniques that you were talking about, is that the brain really can change. Adult brains can change. And things like music can be used as a tool to help change the brain in a positive way or a negative way, depending on how you use it.
0: I just wanted to talk a little bit about music therapy research. Music therapy is evidence-based practice, we have far more qualitative research than quantitative research right now, and it's a really big thing in our field. I love qualitative research, but what you know, the medical field is really looking for are um, randomized control triers, trials. They're looking for, like, Cochrane-reviewed kinds of studies, and we have... I have a wonderful um, group of colleagues um, throughout the country that are really doing um, their best to to you know make these kinds of things possible for us I think one of the biggest problems that we face is because music therapy is so um it's so client-centered i know i keep saying that but it really is and it's so much about that that triangular relationship between the music the client and the therapist and it's really hard to quantify that it's so personal we're doing a really good job at trying to to be better at kind of proving that Mm -hmm. it's what the field needs for many reasons but you know it's still definitely a work in progress Mm -hmm. to get there well, you
1: know, I said we'd alternate between talking and music. So, uh, Jim, you're going to do a couple of your songs now, and are you going to take some of this band with you? All of them. All of them, all Just right. take as many as I can get. Places, everybody.
5: Okay, I never get to tell uh, singer-songwriter stories like Kate does because I am I play in rock bands and stuff, so we don't get to talk about music. But this song, I, I, I wrote this a while back, and I wasn't sure what it was about, and recently I've kind of come to terms with the idea that this was about being sick. uh, It's really cheerful. (laughs) you watch these guys. I showed it to them earlier and they caught on just like that. So I'll say, it's all right. And all you have to do is say, it's not all right. (laughs) And it's very simple instructions. People say, don't worry. Say, don't hurry and i try not to someone said what's your problem but i can't say someone said why is you always looking that way and i say well it's all right it's not all right well it's okay it's not okay well it's all right Pacific, so I jumped in my car and I aimed it west out towards the mighty Pacific, so I said, where are you headed now on your little trip? I said, buddy, it's no big deal, I'm just going to take a dip, and I said, well, it's all right, it's not all right, well, it's okay. Pray, Kate. And he gave me some advice. He said you can't keep going back there more than once or twice. So I stopped my house for a cup of Joe, but you didn't have much to say. I grabbed my hat and I hit the door. I said, I'll be on my way. I said, Well, it's alright. It's not alright. Well, it's okay. It's Let's do that. Yeah, keep going. I said, when well, it's all right, it's not all right. Oh, well, it's OK. It's not OK. Hey, when well, it's all right. It's not alright okay. Do it again. I can't take no more. Well, I said, when well, it's all right, it's not all right.
2: Oh, well, it's OK. It's not
5: OK. Well, it's all right. It's, it's not, not
2: OK.
1: Oh, you guys are great. Nice job. Jim kind of alluded to this, Sarah, the whole idea of singing with other people. Uh, And there's going to be a little bit more of that for you in the audience uh, towards the end here. Uh, Something a little bit more complicated, but not much more complicated than singing, it's not all right uh, when he says it is. But that's like a whole other thing. And as Jim said, we did a show about this recently about people who sing together in choirs, in choral groups. Different set of things going on in the brain. Some of the same things and yet some other ones, right? Can you talk about those?
3: Sure. So, yeah, so all the things that happen when you listen to music or perform music are also happening when you're singing together, except for the extra stuff, right? Which is things like um, anticipating. So you're listening not just as a passive listener now, but as an active listener who's anticipating when your part's going to have to come in. So that's going to involve parts of the brain, like the corpus callosum and the anterior cingulate that are involved in anticipation. But you're also cooperating, right? Neither of them was sort of trying to steal the limelight or step on the other one's verse. And so you have to be constantly involved in that level of cooperation, and that involves certain chemicals like oxytocin. You've probably heard of oxytocin.
1: The cuddle hormone. (laughs) (laughs)
3: That's what they call it. Can I call it that from now on? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It is the cuddle hormone. That is its nickname. So that goes on, and that's part of what makes us feel good about singing with other people, and that's part of what makes it such a positive social experience, and one of the reasons from an evolutionary perspective that people think singing in groups is something that we might have evolved to actually do for its own sake rather than as a byproduct of something else. I also just want to... Is it okay if I say something? Say whatever you want. (laughs) I I just wanted to make the point, because I didn't think it had quite happened yet, that um, music changes your brain. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've talked a lot about how the brain controls what you're doing when you're listening to music or performing music or singing cooperatively, but I just wanted to make clear that music in addition, changes your brain. And there's tremendous evidence, and as Emily said, we need more empirical research, but there's already tremendous evidence that changes in your brain that happen when you're young, say before you're seven years old. Suppose your parents forced you to have piano lessons and you hated it and you gave it up by the time you were 12 and you never picked up a musical instrument again. There's evidence to show that the gains that you made from those music lessons are still with you at age 40 or 50 or 60, the changes that it made in your brain are still there. People who had early music lessons are different from people who didn't when we look at their brains. Yeah, see how (laughs) you liked that. So there's (laughs) (laughs) There's evidence that we've known for a long time that music helps kids in things like math because music is so inherently mathematical.
5: I'm not so sure about that.
3: (laughs) I'm so bad at math. Think how much worse you would I could
5: refute that evidence pretty strongly.
3: But we don't know your baseline, Jim. Really
5: (laughs) it's really really low.
3: Because everything about chords and fifths and rhythm, I don't know, music, but everything about intervals, that's all math, right?
5: People always say to people, I bet they say to you too, Kate, oh, you must be great at math, right? (laughs) I can't balance a checkbook.
1: But you guys have conversations. Musicians have conversations that are essentially mathematical that are inscrutable to to non-musicians. Right.
3: That is true. But it also helps language regions. It helps children with just general skills across the board, so just want to put a plug in.
1: for them. Emily, one thing that we could talk, talk about a little bit is repetition as, a, particularly rhythmic mem- repetition would be something that you would use, particularly in helping people either rebuild certain kinds of neural pathways or, or skills okay. that they've lost or skills that they need to establish that they just aren't part of their, their set right now, right?
0: Yeah, as far as rhythm goes, I mean, certainly um, I use a lot of rhythm. I use, I use rhythm mostly with children with neurological disabilities, and I use a lot of rhythm with my Alzheimer's patients um, to help with memory recall. Again, when you do things rhythmically, there's a structure, there's a, a safety to that. Um, it feels like this is something I can do that's contained, it's supportive. So there's there's lots of things that revolve around around mm-hmm. rhythm that I could go on and on about. But that's okay. That was good, though.
1: This show is an edited version of a conversation and concert we did last week at Watkinson School. The unedited two-hour version is up at wnpr.org, and we'll go out of this segment with one of the songs performed by Kate Callahan, Jim Chapdelaine, and Kate's band. You're going to hear part of Kate's song, Rowboat.
6: Well, I burned your pride. You were like a fish drawn to hooks, thinking rowboats were simple to ride. So you brought me a boat And I burned your oars In a vast sea of love You had nowhere to run from your wars And in the fight You learned to Your doubt, like a door in the face, you could shut all of life's loving out. So I burned your house and knocked down your door. And you, in your faith, it was all I could do to her, a, a adore. been listening to Oasis for hours, and I still don't feel better. Today is going to be the day that they're going to throw it back. To See, my headache is worse. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, with extra help from Jim Chapterlane and the gang at Event Resources. Executive producer Katie Tolarski kept the whole thing rolling, and our interns were Anna Novak and Catherine Pikus. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ace of Bass. And now, back to Colin and Watkinson.
1: Before we go to the last little thing that we're going to do, um, I have one last question for, for you, Kate, because I don't think I've ever asked you this question. What do you think happened to make you get better? I mean, if you had to describe it not as a neuroscientist, not as a music therapist, but let's say even you were talking to a child who wanted to know what happened, what would you say? What was, what's your experience of the role that music played in your recovery?
4: Mm. Well, picking up from where I left off at the beginning uh, around having studied for a year and finally making that connection that I could open my mouth and make tones and melodies come out. Once that occurred, you know, I did start writing songs rather quickly. And I, I think I do know why. It's because music started to engage my emotional, my emotional experience whereas certainly on the cocktail of drugs I was on, my emotional spe- experience was pretty flat. flat. Um, so as I worked with the music, the guitar, and the singing, my emotional experience became more colorful, and I can remember what got me to sit down and write my first song. It was envy. I remember a young man who I might have had a, a bit of a crush on um, telling me about this band he was starting and, and describing it, and it, it sounded perfect for me. You know, of course, I was waiting for him to, to ask me to join his band. They needed a guitarist, and he didn't, and he didn't, and he didn't, and finally one day, I, I was just so envious of what he had that I wasn't being invited to do that I sat down, and I did it myself. <laughs>
1: Jim, one thing that we, you and I talked about early on was, and we've done this once before actually at Freshly Squeezed, that it's, it's good for the audience, I think, if they sing, right? I if, think so. Yeah. It's better for them to
5: not hear me sing. It's and better for them to do the singing. Plus
1: they'll come home flooded, according to Sarah, with oxytocin, which means the rest yeah. of the evening is going to go pretty well. Um, so uh, what are we going to do?
5: Uh, one of the things we talked about earlier was ambiguity and I think this is one of my favorite ambiguous songs and uh, Kate agreed to go along with this ruse Um, so all of us can sing and you guys will know it so you have to sing it. I picked a song that I know you know so there's no fooling around here. When I was just a little Girl, I asked my mother, What will I be? Will be, will be. When I was young, I fell in love, and I asked my sweetheart what lies ahead.